While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue Podcast, a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. I've never called it Overdue Podcast in my life. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. This is Overdue Podcast, a podcast. Welcome to our podcast. Oh, God. This is... We're off to a good start. We need to enlist our listeners for some help, I think. What do you think, Andrew? Help us. What are we... Okay. We'll go to our... But first... (laughs) Uh, what book did you read this week? I read A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. All right, enough of that. Enough about that. I want to talk about uh, last week's book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Because we didn't talk about it enough. Nope, we didn't. I it guess. wasn't hard enough. Um, we got a bunch of nice tweets about the episode, um, including some from Tony and Lee and a couple other folks. Uh, Mike, a new listener, wrote in, um, saying that he started listening because a good friend of ours, Eric, pointed him to the show months ago, and he said, perhaps appropriately, I've been meaning to start listening since then, <laughs> which I think is funny. Mm-hmm. Get it? Because the... All right, thanks, Andrew. No, it's um, hilarious. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> Plays better over email, I guess. Um, <laughs> Mike had been reading the book for a good long time, and he said that, uh, he kind of agreed with my general feelings on the thing. Um, what he did say was he hadn't really considered whether or not the split between the narrator and the ghost man, Fedris, was kind of an echo of the whole philosophical split debate that was raging throughout the book. And that kind of the the upsetting or unsatisfying ending to the book is kind of a direct result of what that book might be saying or at least wrestling with mm-hmm. with regards to like mixing the two philosophies if that makes sense as much uh, as any part of this has made sense to me yes well mike did say in his email he wouldn't try to talk about quality because that would be hazardous to his health um which is probably wise but he also wanted to put me on blast for not talking about chautauquas or Chautauqua. Chautauqua. It's pronounced Chautauqua. Chautauqua. How do you know that? Because I just know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's this like fin de siècle, early 20th century, like traveling American education carnival <laughs> or something. Okay. Um, that was named after Chautauqua, Chautauqua. Lake in uh, New York. And William Jennings Bryant was on this circuit. And basically it was like this, uh, like I said, this kind of, not quite a carnival, more like an educational tour that would go around on trains and visit small towns. But there would be theatrical performances and lectures and music and stuff. And the reason that they come up in the book is uh, Persig equates them to, like he uses Chautauqua Chautauqua. instead of like the phrase Zen Koan, like he's referring to his whole story about Fedris as a particular Chautauqua um, about 
life uh, and that there's kind of something missing that people are not seeking out that type of, you know, education for themselves. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting. I don't know. I kind of just wanted to say the word Chautauqua, Chautauqua. A, bunch, a bunch of times. Uh, Andrew, a bunch of times. That's you funny. have, this is not your first. So thanks Mike for that email. Clearly it went over very well with Andrew. Um, I really enjoyed your email. So now you know how to pronounce Chautauqua though. So, Oh, Chautauqua. You're welcome. <laughs> uh so andrew this is not your first hemingway rodeo correct it's not i have been to other hemingway rodeos they are pretty pretty dour actually they're not they're not fun rodeos okay um but yeah i read for episode 46 which was like a year and, a, and some months ago something stupid like that uh the old man in the sea we read and we uh-huh. talked a bit about Hemingway and his life and all his wives and a bunch of stuff. So I'm I don't want to. I mean, it's always hard when we um, recover, especially like prominent authors, because I know not everybody has listened to every episode. But I also don't want to spend twenty minutes like recovering ground that we've already covered. So I'll give you the bare minimum you need to know about Hemingway, which is that he was born in 1899, died in 1961. And that he is a giant of American white guy literature. Uh Uh-huh. And um, what you need to know about him as he relates to this book is um, he served on the Italian front in World War I. And he drove ambulances. And he was wounded in 1918. And he was sent back to America. And the, the protagonist of this book, whose name is Frederick Henry is also an American who's driving ambulances on the Italian front in World War One. So it's not strictly autobiographical. Like Hemingway himself was not in the battles that he's describing in this book, but he is drawing some from his experience in the war while he's writing this. Yes. Was there okay. stuff about Hemingway that we got from the readers that you you were saying something about that? You wanted to well, you put out a like the bat signal on Twitter. The book uh, signal. The book signal uh, on Twitter, uh, asking for Hemingway thoughts, and uh, Rob didn't want to send us all of that drunken anger at once. Which I think we got a lot of like references to Hemingway's drinking problems, which is, I suppose, this late in the game can be humorous. It's yeah, it's not um, it's not like surprising that people would make those jokes. I don't think. No. Um, Sean. Uh, oh, I want to get to Sean's in a second. Bookish girl tweeted about Hemingway, and then also uh, pointed out that she got followed by multiple Hemingway bots, uh, in addition to her Tolstoy and Shakespeare bots, um, which I think is a weird thing about the internet. Yeah, What's your favorite internet bot, Andrew? S- so many literature bots. <laughs> I guess my favorite. Is it still the RoboCop one where it yeah the tells buy you that, that it, for a dollar one buy that for a dollar I mean that's a good one I feel like there was a Seinfeld one for a while where if you said like hello it would say Newman or something it was something kind of pointless like oh, there, there is pointless there is one called Tofu Product oh. that um if you follow it it automatically follows you back and then whenever you tweet at it it replies back to you with like a mishmash of your own tweets oh good okay and like one in ten times it puts together a sentence that is coherent but also nonsense and hilarious 
cool. As you can imagine, like as with all the stuff on the internet, the the novelty wears off almost instantly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I could I could make a whole argument about how I'm sure Hemingway would have loved Twitter because it's terse and spare and character efficient, but I'm too tired. And everybody's drunk all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Man, uh, sound, I do want to tire. We are this is we've recorded two podcasts in two days. Like we've got some we've got some fun stuff brewing, but in the meantime, like my podcast juices are are at all time lows. <laughs> well maybe this'll uh this'll uh get your juices flowing, Andrew. Did you know Thanks, Sean. I didn't know this. Sean on Twitter, uh, who po- hoped that we would be recording surrounded by six-toed cats. Did you know about Hemingway's fascination with six-toed cats? I didn't know about this. Uh, some ship captain gave Hemingway a white six-toed cat named Snowball, uh, who had a litter of polydactyl gene-carrying cats uh, that apparently Hemingway named after a bunch of celebrities. <laughs> and he uh, would have fit in on Twitter. Like this is just I know. <laughs> um so now a bunch of cats who may or may not be descendants of those snowball cats live at the Hemingway house in Key West, Florida. And I'll try and toss up on Facebook this week uh an article about the photographer Henry Hargreaves, who went to Key West to do a photo shoot of Hemingway lookalikes and found what? out about these cats. And did a bunch of photos of these cats. Is this a cottage industry like like Elvis impersonators or like Benjamin Franklin impersonators? Maybe. Like, can you just hire a Hemingway lookalike to come to your kid's like seventh birthday party? <laughs> your kid wouldn't know what to do with that. He would just drink scotch and tell you about the 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 war. I guess I don't know. I feel like he'd just walk around with a sign that said "Baby shoes never worn, unattributed." I didn't really write write that. That's what it would. That's what it would say. <laughs> Why would it say? Have you never heard that? No, I've heard it. It's just. Why would he have a sign that said that? Because that's, that's as much as a kid can handle at his birthday when he's being creeped out by weird Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. That was just an intake of breath. I said it wrong. Okay, I thought you were. I thought you were mixing, like the H and the E. So there's this Hemingway impersonator, or like a cover band called Ernest Hemingway. That's a. I don't know. Let's get on with the show. Is, what are we talking yeah, about this, this week? Gonna be some editing. No, just leave it all in. Um, what about this book is important before we start talking about the book? Um, it's it's called A Farewell to Arms. It was written by Ernest Hemingway. It was published in wait, 1929. Wait, wait, wait. What? Do you mean Ernest Hemingway's brother? No. Ernest Hemingway? Why would they have different last names? Uh, it was published in 1929. <laughs> and, and this is the book that allowed Hemingway to become like a financially independent author. Like, I think it's it's generally considered to be the one that established him as a writer. And um, there's a quote from Gore Vidal that I like a lot that um, calls A Farewell to Arms, a work of ambition in which can be seen the beginning of the careful, artful, immaculate idiocy of tone that has since marked Hemingway's prose. I like the phrase idiocy of tone. Yeah. Immaculate idiocy of tone. And, and there, there is some of that in this. Like I've, I've, selected some passages to 
to to demonstrate what the prose is like. But yeah, Hemingway has this reputation for being very spare with words and very like direct instead of, you know, florin florid and uh and we talked last time about how that's kind of a direct lineage from his journalism background. Yeah, it's both right. that and then it's a um it's kind of a it's called imagism. I re- I read a little bit about it and um like Hemingway practiced it for a bit. Um I think it was Ezra Pound who was one of the bigger like proponents of it, but it's it's a style that's kind of in response to romantic and Victorian poetry. Yeah, it makes which sense. Which is very ornamented and um and yeah, so so this, like you said about about the Twitter thing, like this this prioritizes economy of words. In, well, and one of and my... it does that even though it it goes in circles a lot of the time, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But it's very well, it's very straightforward. Wh- what Hemingway I've read, um, many of it short stories. I've always liked about the prose that it's it's not spare to the point of boring. It's spare to the point of like what you're, I guess one of the imagism is such a good word for it is that it's so evocative. Like you only pick the words you need and then the reader kind of fills in the rest. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a great short story called Hills Like White Elephants that he wrote where there's a whole, a lot of subtext to the conversation between two characters. There's a lot of meaning in the metaphor, like the the imagery and, and the metaphors that are in the book and the story. But he doesn't spell any of that out and he's not waxing poetic about any of it. It's just kind of there for you mm-hmm. to deal with. So what are we dealing with in a farewell to arms? Um, so like I, like I mentioned earlier, um, it's sort of based on Hemingway's experiences on the Italian front in world war one. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it uses the war as a backdrop, but I would hesitate to call it, I mean, it it is a war book, but it's not about the war. Like the, it's not the about war, fighting in the trenches. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 some of that, obviously. Man, I th- I feel like I should step back a couple steps. Okay. Um, Frederick Henry is this American? <laughs> there we go. I mean, yeah, way back at the beginning, he is this American <laughs> guy who is serving in the Italian army, and and I actually, as I was reading it, I thought it was kind of interesting that. You know, Hemingway's got this reputation for very spare language. And in the book, you get the sense that this guy, Frederick, is is speaking not awesome Italian to a bunch of Italians in a, in a way that would keep the language like purposefully very simple so they could understand each other. Mm, like there mm-hmm. are a few there are a few instances where he tries to tell a joke and it just it does not go over because it doesn't translate or like he's not able to to translate it in a way where it lands with these people. So I don't I don't know if that was intentional but but I thought it was a neat I bet way it is. to incorporate the language that's being used into the into the story itself. Is he doing a thing where he's not writing them in Italian either? Oh, it's no, just it's their all, language is better. Yeah, it's all English. <laughs> and they 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 have very specific ways of speaking that I think if they were translated into Italian, they'd maybe sound a little bit more graceful. Like there's this guy, Rinaldi who always calls Frederick baby. Mm-hmm. And I think in Italian, it would, the word that they would use would, I don't know, it would maybe indicate someone who was young or who just didn't have a lot of experience or something. But in the, you know, in English, he's just calling this guy baby all the time. And it's, there's a kind of like a Justin Bieber vibe. I don't know. <laughs> 
Okay. Or is it just like the mannerism doesn't come across or something something like that. Yeah, there's something that's not quite getting translated and and yeah, that like Hemingway draws enough attention to it that I think it's probably it's intended. a tick, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um so there's this you know, Frederick Henry, he's in this town that is a little ways back from the front and he and all his friends are kind of yucking it up and having a good time and and the war really doesn't seem as real to them as maybe it should okay so they drive out to the front you know they they, uh frederick and a couple other people drive these ambulances so they can transport wounded soldiers back to the town and so they go up to a town you know it's not expected that it will be attacked they're fighting like the austrians and the germans mostly i think well, yeah, because I was just, I don't want to sound like an expert, I was just refreshing my memory. Uh, apparently, Italy had its own bones to pick with the Austro-Hungarian Empire mm-hmm. um, and the Germans and that alliance. And so there was like a secret treaty with London where Italy decided not to help. Yeah, I thought I thought that was kind of cool. Powers. Is um, Austria-Hungary and Germany and Italy were... Um, members of a triple alliance and so if you if you know anything about world war one you'll know that it was stupid that it happened <laughs> like well like archduke ferdinand gets professor killed professor histor professor historian andrew cunningham this just in publishes a landmark paper world war one just plain stupid listen i mean everyone who is in it i don't think they're around to like argue with me anymore <laughs> so so yeah, this is welcome, welcome to World War One Thoughts with Professor History. Hello, I'm <laughs> Professor History. World War One happened because this guy Archduke Ferdinand got popped, and all these countries had entered into these treaties where they had to help each other if anything like this happened. And so because this one guy got shot, the entire world got dragged into it. And so <laughs> Italy and Austria-Hungary and Germany were part of an alliance, but Italy did not like Austria-Hungary, and so they signed this thing called the Treaty of London with the Allies, and they secretly entered into the war uh, with with the Allies instead of with the, the people in the Triple Alliance. And um, yeah, this was between 1915 and 1918, and even though while, while this book is happening, things are not going great for Italy, they eventually prevail. So. You just like saying the phrase triple alliance. Triple you just alliance. like saying. <laughs> I want to form a triple alliance right now. Who could, where, who's the third person we can form a triple alliance with? Is it you, the listener? Are you going to Treaty of London us? Like, Look that... under your chair. There's a Treaty of London. <laughs> that would be a cool competition reality show. What? World War One? That's a terrible it, idea. Just call it Treaty of London. Or Triple Alliance. I don't know. We can, we can. I would watch a show called Triple Alliance. I don't even know what it's about. Set the DVR right now. Yeah. <laughs> Who uses DVR anymore? What were we All talking right, about before we started making broad sweeping generalizations about World War One that are probably oh, making people mad? You said that it's not really the war novel and that these guys, their experience of World War One was kind of like removed from what was actually happening so we made a bunch of ill-informed hasty oh totally remarks. don't sell us short man 
okay, a bunch of hasty remarks about <laughs> the nature of World War One, which seems to jive with how these men were experiencing it at the time. Yes, kind of. Um, so, the, yeah, the first part of this book, they're all kind of footloose and fancy free, and they're just hanging out and making jokes, <laughs> and and I guess, like, some women are kept on retainer like they have a prostitute house basically that people can go to um so uh frederick drives his ambulance to the front it's not expected that there will be anything going on while he's eating some pasta with some of his pals they get shelled and uh frederick takes it pretty hard in the knee His, his knee gets seriously injured um he is transported to milan i think where he um he gets closer with this nurse, Catherine Barkley, who he met in the town he had previously been stationed with, stationed in, and they like smooched a couple times, but there wasn't anything really between them. But while Catherine is taking care of him during his convalescence here, they they fall in love together, and it becomes a thing, and then she's pregnant by the time he is well enough to go back to the front. Whoa. And um, something you should know about Frederick the the whole time is that he likes to drink a lot, which I think might also be drawn from Hemingway's personal experience. You don't say. There's, you know, toward the end of his recovery where his leg is mostly better, he gets jaundice. And I guess the nurses and doctors there are kind of concerned about him for a while. But then like this, this porter who he's been conspiring with, gets caught like ferrying these like 11 or 12 bottles of brandy out of his room. What? And he's he's only jaundiced because he drinks all the time. No. I don't what know. Is, the, is there an explanation comical. for it? He is just, it like, pres- he just likes to drink. Like he says that at one point that like wine makes everything feel good or or something like that. Sure. It's just kind of in the background all the time as this dude is drinking a lot. Okay. How is he feeling about the whole like shrapnel in the leg thing how's that working for him he just wants to get back like to the front like he wants to okay for a while and he does but it's it's different like a a lot of people are either gone or dead um rinaldi the guy you know the the guy who calls him baby all the time is he maybe he has syphilis they don't really know and he's he's kind of overworked and overtired and it's just the vibe is is much different and from there, the Italian army is retreating. And so uh, Frederick and some other people start driving this, this small convoy to meet um, to meet some other people, you know, in the, in the army in another town. And along the way, they get like waylaid. The, the cars get trapped in some mud. Um, someone gets shot by some, you know, some Italian allies who are just paranoid and are shooting anything that moves. Um, there are German soldiers who are driving around who almost catch them a couple times and eventually they get you know they get caught up in this other italian company and there are some people who are um who are basically taking everybody who like isn't italian and asking them questions and determining that they must be like germans or something in italian uniform who've been sent like back to to spread discord among the italians and they're just shooting them oh okay okay 
And um, this this is what I was talking about earlier is I got kind of like an occurrence at Owl Creek, Creek Bridge vibe from this sequence because they're about to start taking him in to question him. And he just like jumps off a bridge and floats down the river. Except it's <laughs> except it's not like a dream where he isn't actually doing that. Yeah, no, it's like it actually happened. But like that was the that was the work of literature I read in high school that I thought about when I was reading. A, a totally real occurrence at a bridge in Italy. At some other bridge. <laughs> okay. So he floats down the river a ways, he hops on a train. He hooks back up with Catherine Barkley, who, as you'll recall, is still pregnant with his child. They row down the river into Switzerland. They... Totally cool thing to do when you're pregnant, I guess. Well, I mean, they, he was going to get arrested for desertion because he has deserted at this point. While he's... Totally reasonable thing to do when you're deserted. <laughs> when, while you, when the allies who you're supposed to be fighting with were about to kill you. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's reasonable. Yeah. So this this is a turning point in the book, and I think I'd, I'd probably say this is the part where it gets its name from. Is um, you know he's he's floating down the river, just having been almost killed by his by people who should have been his buddies, and he it just says anger was washed away in the river along with any obligation. And so at this point, he just kind of washes his hands of the war. He doesn't want to read about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. Like it just, it doesn't feel real to him anymore because he decides that he just was, he just doesn't want to do it, which which is all well and good for him, but it is technically desertion and he cannot stay in Italy after that. (laughs) No, he certainly cannot. So he's about to be arrested, but somebody tips him off and he and Catherine flee into Switzerland, kind of hoodwink the authorities because they have money basically like it's it's that old that old thing where okay being being white and having american papers and having money gets you a lot of places wave 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 shiny 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 it's totally fine that i'm here yeah so yeah they take up residence in switzerland they're they're hanging out she gets you know she her her pregnancy continues apace i guess i would, I would imagine is the tone of this like i mean you're presenting it currently as sort of like a caper does it feel like a caper it does, does not it... feel like a caper okay i'm just checking i'm not i'm not enjoy it's not that i'm not enjoying your telling of it i just want to make sure that no we're... i mean i know I, my retelling has like a mad 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 world vibe to it or something <laughs> but no it's not it's not like that and then we're going to outrun those coppers, see? And then we're going to shack up over here in Switzerland. The baby is under a big W. <laughs> <laughs> he and Catherine are hanging out, having a good time. You know, he grows a beard, I guess, which is, I don't know what you do when you're trying to hide from the authorities. And also, I guess, like, it symbolizes the change he's made in his life, maybe, if you mm-hmm. want to. <laughs> If you want to, if you want to make it a little more ham-fisted than maybe it was intended to be, um, and then Catherine goes into labor, and that labor continues for a while, but the baby is stillborn, and she dies shortly after because she is hemorrhaging. They they did a cesarean, and I guess it did not go super well. That's a shame. And that's the end. Oh. Okay. And so he just he just walks. I mean, he's very he's very upset, but the end of the book is just him walking away from the hospital in the rain. 
Is the war over at this point? No, not over, but it, I mean, it's over for him. It's been over for him for a while. And that that's why I wanted to say that it's maybe not a war book because, you know, the, the war is, again, like the war is the backdrop. The war is what's happening. But when he leaves the war behind, you, the reader, also leave the war behind. Oh, uh, yeah, but in a way, does he, like, hmm, if he has to, like, sneak around places and he has to hide and, and pretend to be other people or, you know, wave his flash American papers or whatever, like, he's not technically leaving the war behind, he's just leaving the conflict behind, right? Like, yeah. you, know what I mean? you know what I mean? It's, it's, hmm. No, I, I, know, I know what you mean. It's, it's, it's a semantic thing, I guess. But, you know, he's he's leaving the war behind, but he's only living in Switzerland, like in hiding with his his pregnant lady friend who he's not married to yet. Like he's he's only doing that because of the war like, of the that, war. It's that circumstance that's making him do that. Yeah. And it's yeah. Not every mo- movie released in the 80s isn't is a movie about the 80s, but they're all 80s movies. OK. Wait, did I? Did no, I actually I, no, draw? I, actually, I okay. like that. I like. All that. right. Okay. Thanks so much. I didn't know that I actually said anything. <laughs> <laughs> I had an out of out of body experience in the middle of that sentence. Um, I was holding a boombox above my head and watching the Goonies. I'm just riffing because I think you're searching for something in your book. That's fine. I am. I don't know if I can keep riffing because I'm out of John Cusack movies. Oh, okay. You... Yeah, yeah, All right. Here, I found it. I found it. <laughs> High fidelity reference, but I found I found no. the thing I was looking for. So it, it's raining at the end of the book, and that's like thematically significant because there's a whole passage earlier where Catherine talks about how she's never liked the rain. Uh-huh. Um, Is she blaming it on the rain? I... T- t- <laughs> I don't don't I wouldn't say she's blaming on the rain. I wouldn't say that. But she can't stand the rain. Oh my god. I don't know, darling. I've always been afraid of the rain. I like it. Well, look, this is going to be rough because Hemingway has these big old passages where it's just people trading dialogue back and forth. So I don't know how like I'm going to voice like all these paragraph breaks. No, it's fine. Could you imagine being the third character in a Hemingway scene? Like, showing up, like, hey, it's me. And and the reader's like, what? Who's this guy? We're out of pronouns for you, bud. You just got to stand over there. (laughs) Um, She says, I don't know, darling. I've always been afraid of the rain. He says, I like it. She says, I like to walk in it, but it's very hard on loving. He says, I love you always. She says, I love you in the rain and in the snow and in the hail. And what else is there? He says, I don't know. I guess I'm sleepy. She says, go to sleep, darling, and I'll love you no matter how it is. And it just, it goes on like that. And this this is one of the things I wanted to talk about is the dialogue between Frederick and Catherine in particular is just insufferable sometimes. You find it insufferable? Because, okay, here's, here's, here's the, here's the thing. You're not really afraid of the rain, are you? Not when I'm with you. Why are you afraid of it? I don't know. Tell me. Don't make me. Tell me. No. Tell me. All right. I'm afraid of the rain because sometimes I see me dead in it. Which yeah. Is like eventually you get around to it having a point, but it's just like, do you love me? Oh, yeah. But no, don't lie to me. Do you really love me? Oh, yeah. I totally love you, baby. 
And it that's like how people talk. That's awesome. That's such a good dialogue. What are you kidding? Is it? Uh, it just it's so it's all they do. They just do all this. This like, do you really love me, tennis? Where they just surf back and forth <laughs> to each other. Yes, I tennis do love you. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't, I don't know. know. I I found it a little bit annoying. Maybe I guess. Can you, you just read that sleepy? Can you just read that sleepy passage again? Like the part the where th- no, t- yeah, the part where he says he's sleepy. But the like, I love you those- in the rain and in the snow and in the hail. And what else is there? I don't know. I guess I'm sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny to me because that sounds like a real conversation that I would have, where I'm trying to have like a real conversation, uh, like. Laura and I always joke, and she won't be upset that I, I'm saying this on the air. Like, we like to joke that, and I'm, we're not telling lies. Like, this really happens. The thirty are you minutes before she falls this asleep. With any more, like, with any more stuff, or just... I'm just gonna drive you insane slowly but surely, like Ernest Hemingway. Um, the thirty minutes before she goes to sleep, she's not responsible for anything she says. Usually, because we have conversations like this, where I try to have a conversation, and then she goes, "I'm sleepy," and then she says something ridiculous, and I tweet it, and then she falls asleep, and she's been asleep for about five minutes the whole time, <laughs> even while she's talking. So I do this because I always go to bed later than Susanna does, and so I'll get yeah. into bed, and she—I mean, she never, she almost never actually wakes up, but sometimes she'll respond she'll like say hi and then we'll exchange a couple sentences or something and like i'm never i can never be sure the next day whether that conversation happened for her that is not not a time to make plans (laughs) (laughs) that is not a time to discuss anything you're doing in the next few days because then you will only be upset when she does not show up for your lunch date yes exactly that's what google calendar is for so it, the dialogue infuriated you. It didn't there... all infuriated me. Just the dialogue between them, <laughs> and it—you know—the crux of the book, I guess. And you, it's not the crux of the book, but you—I mean—you hear that one passage, and you're like, "Oh my god, that's how people talk." But in reality, it's like being around those people who are like, "Oh, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. No, <laughs> okay. you hang up first. Okay. No, you hang up first, and you're just around them for 300 pages. <laughs> and you become less forgiving of their of their little of their little quirks and whatever is, it is that this is. Is Hemingway trying to make you feel that way? Does he think they're super cool? What is your like can you can you take a step back from your not wanting to be a fly on that wall feelings i mean i do know i I do wonder how he feels about female characters yeah of course because katherine parkley really has few interests outside of being with him and being pregnant with his baby and like loving him and stuff so like maybe this is just how he thinks women are or something like they Oh, they, he does not have a great. I mean, we talked. He was married four times, so dude was either really great at ladies or really bad at them. Well, and who was the woman um, that inspired this character? Um, Agnes von Korowski? 
Yeah, it was somebody who he like fell in love with, but then she, once he got sent back to America after he was wounded, she she was not interested anymore. Yeah, and became engaged to an Italian officer. Yeah. Um. So I mean, so maybe there's... maybe that's where all the like, do you really love me? Insecurity is coming from. I mean, that's that's a plausible explanation. I think. Yeah, there's a biographer, uh, Jeffrey Myers, who kind of posits that Hemingway was kind of so destroyed by this that he uh had a pattern of abandoning wives before they abandoned him sure um and so you know it's interesting that this book comes after sun also rises because that one takes the like there's there's similar concerns about um men versus women and and um whose role is what the the wounding like the the scars from the war in that book are much more emasculatory like the main character is kind of like thematically and sometimes somewhat literally neutered by his wounds in the war mm-hmm. um does i know you were saying that this is doesn't really feel like a war novel like even though he was injured how does that impact the the main character how does this impact him moving forward in the book is that was just was that just a cause to meet her or was that well, i mean that that's not where they met that's just where they fell in love but um i think that's the primary function it serves because you do get you know his his legs not all the way better and you do get some mentions of it later especially when he's doing things like floating down a river away from people who want to kill him like you do <laughs> you yeah. do run into it but it's it's not you know, it's it's not something that he thinks about a lot. It's not something that you're reading about at all. Like during the last sequence with Catherine and the baby and everything. Okay. Like just it, it, at that point, it's it's stopped playing into the story. I guess. Makes sense. I yeah, guess so. So that wound is not. It I doesn't carry I metaphoric think, weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not meant to stand in for some kind of mental or psychological wound. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, that's that's most of the book. Like the thing about Hemingway, like we said, is that it's very direct and it's very, you know, it's very economical. And so you get this this story that spans, you know, a, a little more than nine months, obviously, because the whole pregnancy has time to come to term. And they're in these different locations and in these different frames of mind. But it all moves at a pretty brisk clip. And there is not a lot of. You know, there are there aren't a lot of tangents to talk about. Like you are with Frederick the whole time. Um, you're you're always along with him, drinking his grappa and his vermouth and whatever it is that he's that he's chugging down. Okay. And it just it you know, it, it begins and then it it goes on and it moves and it ends. <laughs> that sounds like a book. I can't <laughs> but it's that's all that's most of what it does like there's there's well, not let's all... go back to that Gore Vidal quote go back to that Gore Vidal quote okay what is so ambitious about this book like why okay putting it in its context like why does this book gain traction you know seven or eight years after well, it's only seven or eight years right um after World War One is over um no excuse me, 10 years, why does this become emblematic of 
American World War One experience, or why does this warrant such attention in Hemingway's canon or anyone's canon or canons from World War One? <laughs> <laughs> I like I th- I feel like this is the kind of question I would have to be more immersed in literature to talk about. Like normally we. You know, our our perspective our perspective is that of the layperson, and normally that works to our benefit. But in this case, like I can't, I can't really talk as much about what this is responding to, and then what books are responding to it. But um, that's fair. What? But what feels ambitious about it? I'll simplify my question. Sorry. Like, what is? Is it the scope? Is it? Can you see that in the book where someone would be so moved by it? I mean the I think you'd probably call the ending like kind of manipulative and even predictable now like we you know we've talked so much about about things that become tropes and how the things that establish those tropes still feel pretty fresh okay and yeah. um you know the end of the book is pretty devastating and I think it's it's made all the more devastating by some of the language that Hemingway uses and um and though even even though this this guy you know Frederick is very stoic and you don't really get a lot of emotion from him, mm-hmm. like you do get the sense that this really genuinely affects him. So um, this is this is toward the end of the book. I'm going to read another passage Hit where um, Catherine is. You know he's she's been in labor for a while and it's not clear what the outcome is going to be. And he's. I think like any of us would, he's starting to get worried and his mind is starting to kind of run away with itself. So I'll also start here. Poor, poor dear cat. And this was the price you paid for sleeping together. This was the end of the trap. This is what people got for loving each other. Thank God for gas. Anyway, this is uh, the anesthetic gas. That was okay. That was Thank you for story. clarifying. Yeah. What must it have been like before there were anesthetics? Once it started, they were in the mill race. Catherine had a good time in the time of pregnancy. It wasn't bad. She was hardly ever sick. She was not awfully uncomfortable until toward the last. So now they got her in the end. You never got away with anything. Get away, hell. It would have been the same if we had been married 50 times. And what if she should die? She won't die. People don't die in childbirth nowadays. That was what all husbands thought. Yes, but what if she should die? She won't die. She's just having a bad time. The initial labor is usually protracted. She's only having a bad time. Afterward, we'd say what a bad time, and Catherine would say it wasn't really so bad. But what if she should die? She can't die. Yes, but what if she should die? She can't, I tell you. Don't be a fool. It's just a bad time. It's just nature giving her hell. It's only the first labor, which is almost always protracted. Yes, but what if she should die? She can't die. Why would she die? What reason is there for her to die? There's just a child that has to be born, the byproduct of good nights in Milan. It makes trouble and is born, and then you look after it and get fond of it, maybe. But what if she should die? She won't die. But what if she should die? She won't. She's all right. But what if she should die? She can't die. But what if she should die? Hey, what about that? What if she should die? And I need to... Wait, stop. I just need to take a breath. I just need to breathe that in. But don't you... Like, doesn't that feel like every time you've been in a bad situation, like, that is what your brain is doing to you? Oh, it's perfect. Is like you've got this this overwhelming sense of dread... And then every once in a while, like your your brain tries to talk you out of it, but but you can't. Like you just keep going back. 
It's like that Windows 95 screensaver where you're in the maze and you just can't get out. Why did you? And sometimes why did you, you turn ruin it? Down. Why did you do that? <laughs> oh my god! I'm like having an experience here, and I'm trying to like sort through what is happening and how like important that. So how about that? at the end is because that's where he turns and that's where she dies and how that thing about the like grow fond of it maybe is like so poignant and sad and funny and then you bring up screensavers andrew why am i even your friend oh man i thought that's what our podcast was about (sighs) crying and screensavers that's what it's about (laughs) welcome to overdue this is a (laughs) podcast about the books you've been meaning to read well, it's how was that laid out on the page? I'm perfect. I'm curious. Well, were you reading a digital edition or I am reading a digital edition, but it's one big block of text with no paragraph breaks. Okay, so and it's I'm, not it's not like one big run on sentence, but it's a it's a run on paragraph, I guess. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking right now of like this is something I don't know, but I'm sure uh, someone with an English degree could tell me, <laughs> um, <laughs> like. Hemingway is writing in the general zeitgeist of Joyce um, and Ulysses, you know, like writing Ulysses and things like that. He predates uh, Beckett's, this book anyway, predates Beckett's initial output. Um, But even in just like reading, even just listening to you right now, there's like something extremely Samuel Beckett about it of just like, (laughs) But it's a little less like broken in terms of the thought process. But the kind of broken, yeah. But the way that your mind doesn't need to change vocabulary words to sound interesting, like the Mm -hmm. way that you can just get hung up on something like bad time, or the way that you internalize turns of phrase that other people have given you to like make yourself feel better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like he, the the thing about protracted. That he says yeah, a couple of yeah, times, yeah. That's, right? That's the thing that, that he's heard from the doctor beforehand. Yeah. And so you, when you're processing terrible stuff, like you beg, borrow, and steal from anything you've heard to kind of get a good grip on the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, But then there's something less about the language and more about the rhythm of it that's kind of hypnotic in how it just unfolds. Hmm. Okay. So that's yeah, why so, you read this so book. I okay. feel like, you know, it's it's that, and then it's. I don't like like we still I think have like this fascination with World War II. I think there's this. This thing, especially among like civilians or people who weren't there, to just know what it was like. Mm-hmm. And while this isn't a war book, it does give you a slice of what being a person in the war must have been like. Yes. Well, and I think too, uh, I, it's interesting because it sounds like this book doesn't quite grapple with this scenario specifically, but that this is an American World War One novel. Whereas I think we talked about this a little bit when I read, um, oh boy. All Quiet on the Western Front. Thank you. Oh man, you're a good co-host. Thanks. You were just um, telling me that you shouldn't be friends with me, but I guess I'm I a could good still co-host. be your co-host. That's fine. <laughs> um, but that that book is important, and I think it particularly important for Americans to read, only because 
our experience of World War One was so different. Like our nation's experience of World War One was so different, and our modern experience of it is so different because it doesn't have that easy good versus evil narrative. It doesn't have the decades of impact on, you know, like the state of Israel and American foreign policy and just the generations of people that were around longer for us to, you know, yeah. learn like it was from. This, it was this nasty conflict that ended, but I mean, there's, there's that famous quote about it being like a 20 year ceasefire. Like World yep. War, World War One does little for the future except set the table for World War Two. Yeah. It did. They did not like get all, nobody got good stuff out of World War One. Yeah. Everyone lost basically and that's i mean that's that's another thing that comes up in this book is they're just talking about there's somebody who uses the word cooked as in like your goose is cooked Uh uh-huh and he just says that everyone is cooked and like eventually everyone will get tired of it and like feel like they're losing and once everybody does that it'll be over oh no and i I feel like that's just that's just what trench warfare must have been (sighs) like is like what are you what are you fighting over like how do you tell if you won like (laughs) I don't know. Uh, what are you doing? Yeah, because you're really you're you're climbing on the ground through dead people for ten yards, and then like killing some guy, and then running back to your hole, and then another guy shows up and kills you, and then you go home, and everyone's like, "Oh, how's the war going? You're winning, right?" And you're just nope. And then you go back, and then no one understands how terrible it was cool pretty much so i I guess that's a farewell to arms like i hope i (laughs) hope i did it justice i think we did just fine i think you reading that passage was was key um bring it all together yeah Yeah, this was a this was a um a book recommended to us by haytham uh, one of our Patreon donors. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But um, but yeah, Haytham, if you in particular have stuff that you <laughs> wanted us to talk about that we didn't get to, shoot us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at twitter.com slash overduepod. And we've got a great Facebook page up at facebook.com slash overduepod. I think we're getting pretty close to 300 likes. So Spread the word. Yeah, spread the word. Get us there. And then it's on to 400. Oh. <sighs> Man, the road to 400. Can't <laughs> wait. Uh, in the meantime, uh, if you've already suggested our Facebook page to all your friends to get us th- to 300 likes, because that's an arbitrary goal, you can send them over to overduepodcast.com where they can actually listen to content from the show. Uh, current episodes, back episodes. They can find Amazon links for the books that we read so that you can purchase them. Uh, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, your RSS feeds, your Stitcher apps, if you're into those kind of things. <laughs> you can also, like Andrew said, we do our, we do run a Patreon, which is a great way for listeners of the show to kick in uh, a few bucks to help support the show and the costs that we incur by running it. Um, we've got one of the reward tiers uh, allows you to put a book recommendation up on the website. So we've got those up there. And as evidenced by our book selection this week, another of the reward tiers uh, allows you to kick a book to the top of our queue, uh, which we enjoy because it actually means that we are we haven't found a stinker yet. So challenge, <laughs> gauntlet's been thrown. Um, you can head on over to patreon.com slash overdue pod for more information. And to everyone who's already done that or to people who just advocate for the show on the internet, we really appreciate it. Uh, Andrew and I talk about 
it all the time. We talk about how much we like our podcast almost as much as we talk about like doing the podcast. Yeah, that was a, we, we hung out in Philadelphia uh, this past weekend, and that was a big component of like what we talked about. Was <laughs> man, it's cool to do this podcast. Um, the the Patreon is sitting at one hundred twenty five dollars a month in total right now from twenty nine people, which is amazing. Um, our next milestone goal is uh, when we get to $150 a month, we are going to start recording an extra bonus episode every month. Uh, that episode will go up on the main feed. I'm, you know, We haven't talked about when we would distribute that yet. If it would just be you know, one Monday, you guys would get a twofer or something, or if we would just put it up over a weekend or something. But um, patrons will get that a week early, no matter what tier they're donating at. Donating at. So if you want more of this, for whatever reason... Like, I'm not here to judge you, but there, there's something you can do to make us make more overdue. Sweet. Help us out. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, next week, we are taking a little... Like, you've got The Girl Next Door by Jack Ketchum as your next uh, Patreon book, right? Yes, I do. Um, in between this episode and that one, we're going to be taking a little break to have a very special guest on. Um, we had a really good time recording that episode last night, so we think you guys will, will like it a lot. Um, that will be on uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's The Little House on the Prairie, so look for that next Monday. And until then, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support, and try to be happy.